Hey, thanks for checking out this week's message. We hope you're blessed by the Word of God. For more information on River of Life, you can check out our website, rolmt.com, or download our app. Just search R-O-L-M-T in your app store. Thanks. To, uh, hear God's word. Um, we're glad you're here. I'm excited to be up here just for a second and then get off. But I, I'm I'm excited to introduce our guest speaker tonight. Uh, Colin Field is a friend of mine who I got to meet when I went to the Mighty Oaks program back in 2020, and he and other team leaders were there. Uh, teaching men who God's called them to be, and, and the way they do that is pointing to God's word throughout the entire program. And it was extremely powerful. Uh, it was an honor to meet Colin, and then uh, over the last couple of years, we've got to work together a couple of times through the Mighty Oaks Foundation. I'm super grateful for that. Uh, they drove up all the way from Boise yesterday. It was a long drive, but they made it. And uh, I love what Colin said this morning as we're driving over here. Um, he came and did our, our event this morning and did a great job. Um, but he said, hey, I told him I'd be there, so I'm going to be there. And uh, we appreciate that. We appreciate Colin and his wife making the trip on these roads, and, and uh, we're just so grateful they're here. So without further ado, please welcome Colin Field. How you guys doing tonight? Thanks for coming out. Yeah, it is. Uh, it's quite chilly here. A lot more cold here than uh, than it is back home in in Boise. So, uh, yeah, you guys really have some intense weather. <laughs> but yeah, thank you to Jason Johnson, to Pastor Pastor Jason, for inviting me out here. I'm I'm just thrilled to be uh, be able to be here with you guys to open up God's Word and to worship with you guys. Whereas it's you know negative twenty or something like that outside it. And not, it doesn't feel that way in here, does it? It's nice, nice and warm. You can feel the warmth, the love. I love it. And as Jason said, that uh, yeah, we met Mighty Oaks. Uh, Mighty Oaks is a uh, it's a program that helps veterans and first responders dealing with a wide array of issues. You know, uh, a lot of them dealing with uh, PTSD from war. A lot of them dealing with with broken marriages, uh, dealing with issues from childhood, and all those kinds of things. And um, what we show them that week is they don't, they don't need psychoanalyzation. They need the gospel. Amen. And so that's what we point them to all week long. And um, that's, that's one reason that I love going out there. I know when I went through as a student, it was the biggest week of my life. And it had such a huge effect on me that I just I felt like I had to give back. And so that's one reason why I go. And, um, you know, when I went outside looking in on my life, you would think that things are going pretty good. You know, I spent 14 years in the Navy. I had a really good career there. I worked as an overseas security contractor for the U.S. government. Um, and then I was currently working as a paramedic for Life Flight. So, you know, my, my profession was going well. Um, married, good, good family, good, good house, all that kind of stuff would provide for my family. So outside looking in, you'd think it's pretty good. But if you, if you had the ability like God, to peer inside my heart and see what was really going on, you would see a selfish heart that seeked only to serve myself. You would see a man that's not a good father. You would see a marriage that's on brink of divorce. And it was in this, much like the, uh, the crippled man we read about at the pool of Bethesda, it was in that that Jesus found me. It was in that that he was able to rescue me 
And it was through the use of men at Mighty Oaks, when I went through, men that shared the gospel with me. And, <clears throat> and that's what we're going to be talking about tonight. We're going to be talking about the gospel. The text we're going to be reading uh, from comes from the book of Titus. And uh, before we dive into it, I just want to set it up a little bit because scripture, man, we can open it up and we can get so much wisdom just at the surface level. But when we are able to understand the context of scripture, the riches are so much more deep. So the book of Titus gets its name uh, for the recipient of the letter. It was written by the apostle Paul. Uh, He had a young protege whose name was Titus. And, uh, and Titus was a young pastor, uh, much like his other protege, Timothy, who uh, was in the island of Crete. And so in this island of Crete, then they had, they had really two big groups of people uh, that were arguing over some massive doctrinal issues at the time. And what they were arguing over was there was one side that was the Gentiles and there was one side that was this Jewish background. A lot of them new believers and the Jewish background folks were saying, hey, we need to follow the Old Testament laws. Everybody must follow everything from the Old Covenant. That includes the Jews who just, or the, the Gentiles who just became believers, you need to get circumcised. And so there was this big debate that was going on in this church. And so Paul pins this letter to uh, Titus, and it's a short letter. And if you get a chance, I highly recommend reading through all of it. It's just three chapters. But in this letter, then, then his main point, he, it's one of the few epistles that Paul writes, there's no doctrinal issues that he's covering in this letter, which is interesting. He knows who Titus is. Titus knows, he was raised up by Paul, he was taught by Paul. Titus knows the Christian faith. Paul is writing this letter to encourage his young protege and to encourage him on how to navigate the complexity of the problems that he's facing as a young man leading a church a divided church. And what we're going to turn to, our, our text is going to be Titus 2 through 11 through 14. And in this text, what we're going to see is the main thrust of Paul's argument to Titus. We're going to see that his main focus on how to encourage his young protege when he's facing so many different challenges. So, <clears throat> real quick, we're going we're gonna to read through this These uh, four verses, 11 through 14, says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself up for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself, a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. <clears throat> so let's go back to verse 11. It starts off, for the grace of God has appeared. And we could stop right there. We really could. That really says it all. Just those words right there. Just think about that for a moment. Let that resonate in your heart that the grace of God has appeared. This, of course, is referring to Jesus. Jesus being the physical manifestation of the grace of God. God has given us his only son to come to be born in a a manger. Now, for those of you who don't know, like we we see the manger at Christmas and it kind of looks 
cute, right? A manger back there was not a cute place. It, I've, I've gotten the opportunity to go to Israel and I got to go in a manger. It's disgusting. It really is. Think of like a, uh, a barn in a cave. That's kind of what we're working with. And so it would smell like animals. It would smell like their, their feces. This is where God leaves his throne room of grace to be born in. He comes into that to live the perfect life only to be tortured and murdered for it. This is what the grace of God is. And yet, we see nothing that we've done to earn this. There's nothing that we have done. We don't see anything about what we did to get this. It's nothing about us. This is all about God and what he has done for us. And the Bible tells us that God is a judge. He's not just a judge, but he's a perfect judge. Now we can look at our judicial system now in America. Our forefathers penned a constitution which was probably the greatest of its time, the greatest government ever created at that time. We are now the most prosperous nation, 330-something million people in this country, and collectively together we have come up with the best judicial system that we can come up with. And I think all of us in this room could agree it's not perfect, right? It's far from perfect. There are, there's still innocent people getting put in jail, and there's still guilty people getting set free. It's far from perfect, but not God's justice. God's justice is always perfect. <clears throat> and as such, what, uh, what does God hold us to? His expectation for us is perfection. We read in James 2.10, it says, for whoever keeps the whole law, but fails at one point, has become guilty of all of it. This is basically saying there's 613 laws in the Old Testament. If you've ever broken one of them, you're guilty of all of them. Now, I think we could safely assume that nobody here has ever kept that standard up. But we don't have to assume, do we? Because we can read, we could open up God's word. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every single person alive has sinned. And some people think, well, maybe though I've sinned, then it's okay, I can make up for it with my good works. I can do enough good in this life that I can, I can atone for my own sins. God makes it clear that that's not possible. In Isaiah 64, 6, it says, we have all become like one who is unclean and all righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. The translation of that polluted garment is actually a used menstrual rag. That is what our righteous deeds are to God. That is how we are on our best day. We can never do enough to earn our own salvation. And this is why the grace of God has appeared, to do the work that we never could. It had to be God to save us. It had to be. And this allows for God's perfect justice to be still executed and allow us to have access to salvation because of his grace. But it continues on in that verse 11. It says, bringing salvation for all people. Now, this does not endorse some sort of universalism. You know, a lot of people in America today, they prescribe to like the, the Buddhist philosophy of 
all rivers lead to the ocean, which basically means it doesn't matter what your religion is. Okay. <laughs> sorry, 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 sorry. There you go. Okay. Thanks. <laughs> so, the Buddhist philosophy of all rivers leads to the ocean basically means it doesn't matter what you believe. As long as you're a good person, then you'll make your way into salvation. That's not what the Bible teaches us. Not even close. What Jesus says is, uh, is quite exclusive. I don't know if it's, is it down here? Um, so Jesus says in Matthew seven thirteen and 14, he says, enter by the narrow gate for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter it are many for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. So once again, understanding the context of what Paul is writing when he says bringing salvation for all people. Now, we understand that, that Jesus' sacrifice is good for every person to ever have been born and ever to be born. His sacrifice can cover the sins of everybody. <clears throat> Switch it over. All right, is that better? All right. Um, <clears throat> anyway, so his, his sacrifice is good enough for everybody who's ever been born ever to be born. It, it is good enough for that. That doesn't mean that everyone born and everyone to be born will make their way to salvation. That's what we see in that verse, in uh, those two verses in Matthew. But when Paul is writing about all people groups, once again, we got to understand context, right? There's two different people groups. For the longest time, Israel was the only nation that was allowed access to God. Everyone was on the outside. Israel was the only one on the inside. But Jesus came and he broke down those barriers. And Jesus made it so that everybody could have access to God, Gentile and Jew alike. So when Paul says that bringing salvation for all people, he's... he's He's talking to a specific audience. This letter was meant, all these epistle letters we read in the New Testament, they're meant to be read aloud. They would be sent to a church. The book of Romans would be sent to the church of Rome. Book of Galatians, sent to the church in Galatia. And the intent was that somebody would go up in front of the church and read it to the entire church body. So when the church body would hear bringing salvation for all people, it would be clear what Paul's point is, that his point is Gentile and Jew alike, everybody has access to salvation because of Christ. <clears throat> this is an important distinction to make because many people in America, they, dis they prescribe to that, that Buddhist philosophy, like I said. And when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, nobody comes to the Father except through me. That's an exclusive statement. That, that that's not the case. We can't, we can't prescribe to any belief system. Jesus is the only way. <clears throat> but many people in America would say, well, that's not fair. That doesn't sound fair to me. That maybe, uh, maybe I'm a good person. I'm really not that bad, right? I, I try to do good things. I try to do right by people. It's not fair that just because I don't read the Bible or I just don't do that, that insert whatever argument you want. I'm sure you guys have heard it. I've heard a lot of those arguments that it's just not fair. Well, I'll tell you, it sure wasn't fair when God took on that human flesh and was born in the manger, it sure wasn't fair when Judas betrayed him 
and turned them over for 30 pieces of silver. It wasn't fair when the Romans would beat and flog and whip him. It wasn't fair when they placed a crown of thorns on his head or nailed him to the cross. That was the most unfair action in the entire history of the human race. But yet it was because of that that we have access to God, that we can, that we can serve a perfect, just God where we can have salvation. I am so happy that I serve a God who is just, that, that the, the innocent are innocent and the guilty are guilty, and all of us are guilty. But Christ paid that sacrifice, and we have that access. And it is because of that that we can still serve that just God, that he remains just, <clears throat> and I'm so thankful that he is just and not fair. As I said earlier, his, his, um, his grace is sufficient for all, right? As we said, for all people, for everyone past, present. But it's important that we understand the vastness of his grace, how deep it is. Because so many times I've heard guys say, well, I can't come to God. I'm just too bad. The things that I've done, if you only knew, trust me, I know I was there right? But we can also turn to the Bible. We can look at a guy like David. David, who committed adultery, had a baby out of wedlock, and had one of his own friends murdered to conceal that sin. God forgave him for that. We can look at Paul. Paul was the biggest persecutor of the early church. He would persecute Christians and throw them in jail. He would have some of them murdered, but God not only saved him and forgave him, but put him to use. And the majority of what we read in the New Testament is written by Paul himself. There is no sin that is too great for God's grace. None. His grace exceeds anything we can possibly understand. But we also need to have a right understanding of grace. You know, when I was, before I was Christian, I would talk to other Christians and I would ask them, like, so you know you're saved. You know you're going to heaven. And they'd say, yes. I said, well, what's your motivation for doing good? If you're already in, why keep doing good? You know, you're, you're good, right? You could live however you want. Well, that would show that I obviously had an incorrect view of who God is and what Jesus has really done. Because when we have that correct view, Paul says in Romans 6, verses 1 and 2, he says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? God's grace never leads to sin. Yeah. Never. The forgiveness of our sins came at a cost. That cost was Jesus' life here on earth. And every time that I'm sinning, I'm driving another nail into him. <clears throat> when we understand what he did, what he paid for, the debt that I could never repay, it doesn't drive me to want to sin. It drives me to want to go closer to God. <clears throat> when, when we use the word repent, right? That's, it's pretty common in our Christian faith, the word repent. A lot of people don't know what that actually means. The, the word repent comes to us from Greek, and it was an actual military command. It was a marching command, which meant about face. 
because sin and God are 180 degrees out. God this way, sin that way, right? And we cannot move towards sin and be moving towards God at the same time. We just can't. If we're moving towards sin, we're moving away from God. Repent means stop moving this way, turn back, go to God. That is what repentance is. <clears throat> when, we, when we move in that direction, then that shows that we truly understand God's grace. This is where it leads, is leading us to repent of our sins and to return back to God as we are supposed to do. The grace leads us to what Paul talks about in verse 12. Verse 12 says, training, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. This phrase, training us, in the original Greek was, was used, the word that's used here was used as how a parent trains a child. It's used <clears throat> the, to encompass the entire process of teaching, encouragement, correction, and discipline. This is how our Holy Father trains us. The same process that our parents would. There's a big fancy word called sanctification, which basically means growing to be more like Christ each day. <clears throat> the, notice the first verse has nothing to do with us, but as we are moving down, then now we are starting to take an active role here. The first part of it, when we come to faith, we get to experience God's grace for the first time. That's nothing to do with us and everything to do with him. And God is the one that provides the grace, but as we start moving forward in our Christian walk, we are called to take an active role in our Christian walk. We are called to start training. Now, I can tell you from my background in the SEAL teams, then I'm quite familiar with training. And training is not always easy. Sometimes training can be quite difficult. And I'm a little bit biased on this one, but I think the SEAL teams are probably the best fighting force that the world has ever seen. But it's not because the SEAL teams are made up of, you know, some big uh, superhuman action star, not Captain America or anything like that. It's our training that we go through that, that prepares us for the battle. There's an old saying that says, the more you sweat in training, the less you bleed in battle. And so we are called to, to live that in our Christian life, to train. And our training is what's going to prepare us, right? When we train during these, these times that are easy for us, we can start putting away things that are distracting. We can start living more and more for God as we train up in this stuff. When the trials and tribulations happen in our life, because just because you're Christian does not mean you will not face trials and tribulations. Bible says the opposite. Bible says you will face trials and tribulations. But when we are walking with Christ, we can get through them. And when we train for this, when the more we sweat in our training, the less we bleed in battle. Absolutely. When we are prepared for these trials and tribulations, then we are prepared for the battle. What does the training look like for a Christian? Training looks like getting in your Bible every day. Prayer every day. Not just showing up to church, taking an active role in church. Training for me, I told you, you guys, that... Um, this morning that I had a problem with drinking, that I had uh, become addicted to alcohol. And so when I first came to faith, 
then I was trying to get rid of this alcohol that was plaguing me. And one of the things that I turned to that I think helped me more than anything else was memorizing scripture. Because when those, when those cravings would come up and I would want to go back to the bottle, I would pull up a verse in my head and I would reflect on it. And there's a reason I chose this passage right here to preach on because this was the first one I went to. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. And I would reflect on that again and again and again. It would get me through those tough times. And I never thought in my old days that I'd make it a month without drinking, let alone however many years it's been since I've had a drink. I don't think about it anymore. God has rescued me from that. <clears throat> but we need, to, we need to be training constantly. But it's not just about what we put in. There's a famous uh, pastor out there. His name's Charles Spurgeon. And he once said, the most difficult part of training young men is not to put the right thing into them, but to get the wrong thing out of them. And we see that example in Hebrews. When the author of Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Part of training means removing distractions, getting temptations out of our life. And that's not easy. Sometimes those things provide us comfort, happiness, whatever. But we need to lay that aside. As Jesus says, if your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. There was a guy that I knew that he was, uh, he was dealing with an issue with uh, pornography. He was going to college. He was living on campus. And what it took for him was he had the internet taken out of his room as a college student. That meant he would have to walk across campus every single day to get to the library to do his homework. But he was willing to do that because the burden of walking to the library is so much lighter than the burden of sin that he would have to carry around with him. We need to lay aside every weight. I got my friend Justin, who would, who's got a great saying. He would, he would put it like this to the guys. He'd say, you know, if down the road, quarter mile down the road, I said there's a million dollars waiting for us right now. It's a race. Whoever gets there first, you get that million dollars. Are you going to grab your purse, your backpack, all these things as you start running down the road? No, you want to be as light as possible to be the first one down there, Right? But that's what it means to lay aside every weight because the prize we are seeking is so much more than a million dollars. We are seeking eternal salvation. Why not? Why would we not cast aside every weight? But with this, with this training, God does not just save us and leave us and expect us to figure it out on our own. God empowers us with the Holy Spirit. When we submit our lives to Christ, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit gives us strength to resist that sin. It gives us strength to move forward. Second Peter verse one three or uh, chapter one verse three says, "His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life, godliness, through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence." What this verse is telling us is that same power that raised Christ from the dead is alive in the believer today. 
that same power. There is nothing that can hold you back when you have that kind of power living inside of you. We need to stop relying on self. If, you're, if you are stuck in a habit of habitual sin, we have got to stop relying on self. So many times I see guys coming to Mighty Oaks and they're saying, man, I, just, I, I gotta try harder. No, wrong. You're gonna fail. Stop relying on self. Point your eyes up. That's what you need to be looking for your strength. When we look to ourselves, we'll fail every time. We look to God, we will succeed every time. I also heard it once say that a mark of a true Christian is not one who doesn't sin, but how quick repentance comes. Because we, we're talking about casting aside sin, all of us will fail. I'm going to fail sometime in the future, I promise you. Probably before tomorrow, I'll probably do something. But what the mark of the true Christian is, is the turnaround time. Is how long am I going to keep walking this way and away from God? The moment that I realize that I've sinned, I stop it immediately. Repent, turn back to God. Now this training is for the here and now. And with this training, we can experience freedom and hope. I've gotten to experience that with my own issues with alcohol and plenty of other issues that I've worked through in my life, getting to experience that freedom and hope. But for the Christian, even though we walk in his will and we may get to catch glimpses of heaven every now and again, right? Our true hope is what he's talking about in verse 13. In verse 13, it says, waiting for our blessed hope the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so we can look to that. And even though the world around us is devolving to chaos, there's all kinds of issues going on that I can't even understand anymore. I can't even watch the news. It's crazy out there. It absolutely is. And we start wondering, man, what is going on here? Jesus is still on his throne and Jesus is still coming back. That is our hope. And our hope isn't just in a place called heaven in a location that we don't quite understand just yet. Our hope is that one day we will be face to face with our Savior, looking him in the eye, being able to worship in his presence. We can spend an entire eternity groveling at his feet, praising and worshiping him, and it still wouldn't be enough. Still would not be enough. But that is where our hope truly lies. But conversely, if you are not in Christ, man, that should scare you. That one day you will be face to face with him. Because the second time he comes is going to be a lot different than the first. When he came the first time, it was to serve. It was to create a pathway of salvation for all of us. The next time he comes, we'll be in judgment of this world. He will come to rule his world is what he is coming for. And that, as a Christian, is our greatest hope that we could ever hope for. As a non-believer, man, I couldn't even imagine how scary that would be, knowing that day is coming. Now, the final verse, verse 14 says, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So we see that Christ did this so that we could be his people. Too often, people view this in the negative light. 
I was one of them previously. I used to think that God is just wanting to put me in a box. He wants to control my life so I can't do the things that I want to do. That's how I viewed God. I really did. I couldn't have been further from the truth. The truth of is that God loves me enough, he gave me free will. He let me make my own choices. And I had the free will to choose. And I thought that I was living the life that I wanted to. I had the freedom to do whatever I wanted to do. But when I finally took a step back and evaluated my life, was I really free? I was stuck in bondage to sin. I wanted to stop drinking, but I couldn't. That was holding me down. My own free choices were what was keeping me in bondage. God doesn't want to put us in a box. He wants to set us free. That is what God's intent is. He knows what is best for us. This is why he gives it to us. A lot of times, you're, if you're a parent, you know, you have a kid and you set rules in place and they get all upset with you. Why can't I play with the stove? Well, because you're going to get burned. But they don't understand that, right? They don't understand it. It's the same with, with grown-ups out here, not understanding God's will and what he wants for us. He doesn't want to hold you back. He knows what's best for you. He's trying to keep you safe. But it's when we truly submit to him and start walking in his will that we get to truly experience freedom. When we can be removed from any bondage of sin and free to worship him. But also says when we belong to him, we should be zealous for good works. This is not because we need to earn our salvation or some sort of merit system that we have to do so many good things to atone for our bad. That's not what that means. Our zealous for good works should be based out of love of what he has done for us. Romans 5.8 says, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We were actively sinning against him. He died for us. The guys nailing him to the cross, he died for them. Judas died for him. He died for everyone. And when I get to thinking about this, and I start thinking about the gravity of my sins, I start thinking about every time I walk into a room, I can point out immediately who the worst sinner is. It's me. Because I am well aware, I have no idea what sins you've committed in your lives, none. But I know what I have done. And so I know my list is high on how many sins I've committed my, myself. And I know that Jesus has set me free from all of that. It is based off of that knowledge that I have the zeal to serve him. It is not because I have to, it's because I get to. It's also interesting to note the, the Greek word that's used here when it's talking about a people for his own possession. For his own possession, the word that's used there is actually a, a word that was, uh, it means reserved for, and it was used when talking about the spoils of war. The spoils of war that were set aside specifically for the king, which is exactly what we are. Except we didn't fight the battle. The king did. The king fought the battle for us, and we are his spoils. But what does it mean to be zealous for good works? Most would think it would involve doing good deeds, serving the church, doing things like this, and these are all correct answers. But where it needs to start, we need to go back to verse 12. 
training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. That is where our zealous for good work starts. It doesn't do me any good if I'm, if I'm Johnny squared away on Sunday showing up you know, 30 minutes early and, and I'm serving in all kinds of ministries, but then I go back home and I'm belittling my wife, I'm yelling at my son, and I'm not doing the things I'm supposed to be doing. We need to start right here with our own heart. This is where the good work start. We start working on ourselves. We start casting aside weights. We start serving God by working on our own lives. After I went through Mighty Oaks, I was really, man, I was on fire. I was excited. I was excited about this new life, this new Christian walk. But before I could ever serve anyone else, I had to first figure out who I am in relation to God and how to move forward. It took me about two years going through a discipleship process of doing that. And once I did, man, I finally got to really start serving. After I got everything squared away, I got to start working at Mighty Oaks. I got to start serving in my church. I got to start helping others. But it's kind of like you, you see on when you go on the airplane, right? And uh, they're giving you that brief before you go up in, up in the air. And they talk about oxygen masks coming down. And if you have a kid, what do they tell you to do? You put yours on first, then the kids, right? Because you're not going to do the kid any good if you put his on and then you pass out. Right? You got you to take care of yourself and then you can take care of others. This is what this is talking about. We need to learn to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. And that is difficult because the world will not stop attacking. It will keep on coming. There is more temptations out there. There is more sin out there. It will never stop. But when we are able to line ourselves up with a life that God wants us to live, man, we can really start pouring into other people. We can start help, helping bring others to Christ. I'm not saying you got to get completely fixed up because like we said, that's never going to happen. But what we need to do is at least start working on ourselves. Start that training. Start reading your Bible daily, right? Start, start doing all those spiritual disciplines and we can start moving forward. And that word zealot, <clears throat> what, it, uh, what it means, it was only used twice in the Bible. In this verse and one other time in the gospel when it's describing the, apo uh, the apostle Simon, who's the zealot. Now, in Israel back then, they had zealots. Rome probably would have called them terrorists because zealots back then were guys that were willing to fight, willing to kill, and willing to die for their Jewish faith. And that's what uh, Simon the Zealot was. He, was. he was a zealot. He would go out there. He would fight the Romans, you know, ambush them, stuff like this. Now, I'm not saying that that's what we got to do. I'm not trying to encourage you guys to go outside and kill people. Please don't, take, don't hear that. But what I am saying is we need to serve God with that same sort of ferocity. We need to have that same zeal that those guys would have in going into battle when we're serving God, when we're faced against sin, when we have a habitual sin in our life and we're not willing to deal with it, you're not being zealous for good works. We need to be willing to make war against that sin and to win at all costs, life or death. That's what this is about. But bringing it to a close, I find it interesting that Paul, when he's writing his young protege, as we talked about, he's dealing with a complex issue in this church. He is a young man serving his first time as being a pastor in a church that's divided in a land that's foreign to him. And Paul could encourage him in any way, but the main thrust of his argument is the simplicity of the gospel. 
And I know that there's a lot of people out here, you guys are going through trials right now. And a lot of them are, are complex problems. And I'm not trying to oversimplify what you're going through. There's a lot of nuance to what, what everyone's going through. And we got to figure that out in the details for sure. But where we need to start is exactly what Paul's saying. We need to start by looking at the gospel. I have a friend, Luis, who, uh, who says it's easy to get complacent. If you've, if you've ever been walking with the Lord for any length of time, it's easy to get complacent with the gospel message. Yeah, I've heard it before. I know, yeah, Christ died for my sins. Yep, nothing I can do to atone for it, so I follow him. Yep, got it. It's easy to get complacent with that. Luis says, I have to preach the gospel to myself daily. And since I started doing that, it gave me such a bigger awareness of my own sin. And it gave me much more zeal in serving the Lord because I have such an understanding of what he has done for me. I had two, two chiefs one time. One was not a good chief. He, uh, he kind of ruled with an iron fist. And we, we had to follow him because, simply because rank. This guy, uh, he ended up getting removed from his post and another one came in and this guy didn't do anything different. He just trusted us to do our own jobs. And the difference between the two are kind of the difference in how a lot of people look at faith and religion. Some people look at faith and religion as I have to serve God because he's God. That's what I have to do. I have to do, the, I got to check these boxes so I can do the right thing. But that's not understand. That's not serving him because of what he has done for us based out of love, based out of recognition of who he is and who I am. Now, if you're a Christian here today, I challenge you going forward this week, reflect on this. Reflect on the gospel message. Reflect on the simple, the, how simple and beautiful it is. If you're not a Christian, if you've never known Jesus, I challenge you to come forward and to, to evaluate your life and to experience what true hope, peace, and freedom looks like based out of love. If you feel that God is calling you into a relationship with him today, we have prayer teams here. You have pastors. You can talk to myself, talk to any of us. We would be happy to walk with you on that happy to pray with you through this. I pray that you get to know that same peace and that same love. Let's pray. Dear God, we are so thankful for your gospel message of hope. We are so thankful that you, you don't make us serve you. You allow broken sinners into your fold and allow us to serve an amazing and holy and perfect God. Lord, I ask that you would, you would keep us acutely aware of this, that you would keep us acutely aware of everything that you have done for us, that we would want to serve you based out of love and nothing else, of understanding who you are and who we are, the amazing, holy God that you are and the broken sinners that we are. 
Lord, that we don't have to carry around shame or guilt because of our sin, that we have been set free from it, that we don't have to listen to those tools of the enemy, that we can look to you in hope and know that you are coming back, Jesus. Lord, we anxiously await that day. We look forward to that day. And until then, Lord, we are happy to train based off of your love, your guidance in the Holy Spirit. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Hey, thanks for listening. River of Life is a ministry in East Missoula, Montana. We exist for one purpose, to make Jesus famous by showing his love to the lost, broken, and hurting. For more information, you can check us out online at rolmt.com. If you've made a decision to follow Jesus today, we'd love to talk to you about what comes next. Shoot us an email at nextstep at rolmt.com. Thanks.